0: Learn all about investing in real estate in Stamford, Connecticut, with a combination of real estate financial planning and modeling with numbers specific to Stamford, plus syndicated, more generalized recordings of live and pre-recorded real estate investing classes, not all of them specific to Stamford. Be sure to stay tuned after the podcast for a message from our sponsors. Well, good morning and welcome everyone. This is your host, James Orr with another really cool class today. Today's going to be a continuation of our series on how to improve cash flow. And today we're going to focus in on how to improve cash flow on properties that you already own. So, this is the section of the kind of like um, infographic that we have where we talk about all the different things you could do on properties that you already own. So, this is the infographic I was talking about. So uh, I've broken it down by stages. How to improve rental property cash flow or cash now. uh, And we've broken it down by stages. The first stage is when you're searching for properties. And we've covered that in a previous class. We're not going to cover that today. The next stage is when you're financing the rental property. And we've already covered that in a previous class. And that's the largest section of options that you have for improving uh, the number of ways to kind of increase cash flow. Now, the second largest is actually today. Uh, but financing is the, the largest group of that. And we covered that in a previous class. So, I'm not doing that. Uh, we've also covered how to improve property cash flow when you're thinking about which real estate investing strategy you're going to use, you know, whether you're going to do lease options or house hack or things like that, get roommates, you know, change the term of your strategy or whatever you're doing there. So, those are all the strategy ones. The improving the property itself is a class we have that's separate than this. Then, we've done the one on how to market a property. We covered that previously. That was the last version of this kind of series that we did is all the different things you could do while marketing your property for rent. Today, we're covering all the different things about properties that you own. And then the final one that we've yet to do is all the different things you do when you're renting the property itself. And so that's another pretty hefty list, which we're gonna cover, not today, but another class. So today though, we're gonna talk about all the different strategies when you own a property. And I've, I've kind of broken this stage down into... Uh, seven different subgroups. And so the subgroups I have, which I'll go into detail in each one of them, um, is things where you're talking about refinancing or paying off loans, uh, things related to taxes on the property, although I've broken out depreciation as its own kind of dealio, uh, because I think it's that important. Uh, Then we have another kind of like subcategory of all the different things related to insurance, things related to making payments on things, things related to managing your property, uh, and things related to maintenance on the property itself. And then, of course, the depreciation one, which I've saved for last, but it's probably, it's arguably one of the more important ones, especially for the next year or two or three, uh, when we have this uh, this kind of like bonus depreciation stuff going on. So let's jump right into the covered thing. So let's talk about things you could do on properties that you own to improve cash flow related to refinancing or paying off loans. So I have three different options on here. The first one is. Refinancing to extend the term of a loan on a property that you already have. You know, I think a lot of folks focus in on improving the cash flow on the property that they're about to buy. But sometimes it's about optimizing the properties you already own before you go buy the current property, because sometimes you kind of paint yourself into a corner where you can't do certain things after you buy the next property. So, for example, um, from time to time, and I think it's going on right now you are limited in the number of cash-out refinances or even rate and term refinances, if, if I'm not mistaken, on properties that you own if you own a certain number of properties already. So if you already own, let's say as an example, 10 properties, it might be really hard for you to do a cash-out refinance on one of your other properties. You almost need to pay off a property first, get down below the threshold that the lender requires, which I think is 10, but you know, go, go check with your lender to find out what the current rule is. And then you'll then you'll be able to do your cash out refinance. So you may want to apply these changes before you go acquire another property, which may or may not move you over the new limit or whatever the current limit is. And honestly, these limits can change. So you may think, hey, look, I'm good until I get to whatever it is, six, because I'm doing these specific types of loans. And then once I get to seven, then I'll need to worry about that. But while you're in the process of doing this, the rules change on you. And now you have to be concerned when you get to four. So, realize you need to start thinking about this and planning for it in advance. So, one of the things you could do in order to kind of improve cash flow, not just on the property you're buying, but your overall rental property cash flow picture, a more holistic view of everything, not just the one property that you're buying, because improving cash flow on your whole portfolio does help you overall, even if you're just optimizing for each one individually, sometimes it makes sense to look back at stuff you've already done and improve on that before you move forward. Okay. So let's say you have a property and you've been, you've owned it for a while, you paid down on the property and the property value has gone up considerably. And you, you, you owe a lot less on the property now than you did when you first got the loan. So the payment was much higher because you used to have a higher mortgage balance, you used to have a higher amount that you were borrowing. And so the payment was based on that higher amount over a 30-year period. Now, 15 years into the loan, the amount you owe is much, much less, such that if you go and you just do a rate and term refinance or extend the term of the loan, it's another way of saying that, you're not actually going to pull any cash out. You're just say, look, I owe $100,000 on this $400,000 property. When I initially got the loan, it was $200,000 on a $250,000 property, but now I only owe $100,000. Now I want to go and I want to go to the lender and say, look, I want to take this $100,000 that I owe, and I want to extend it out to 30 years now, where I only have 15 years left to pay it off, as an example. Now I want to say, let's extend it out to 30 years, which would reduce the amount of your monthly payment considerably which could improve your cash flow, And that could be the difference between you being financially independent or not. If you think about that, right? If you go and you just do your rate and term refi, it could get you an extra, I don't know, three or 400 or $500 a month. If you do this on multiple properties, maybe a thousand, two thousand, three thousand 2,000, $3,000 a month. And that could push you over the edge of being financially independent. So you really want to think about this and how you can optimize it. So you could refi in order to extend the term. You paid down a loan. You only have... 12 years left on it, 11 years left on it, five years left on it, you know, 22 years left on it. But now you want to go and extend it back out to 30 years, or maybe even longer if you can get access to a longer loan, which I think will be hard for you as a real estate investor. But maybe it's out there at some point in the future. Just think about it. Um, But you go ahead and extend this loan to go ahead and reduce your payment. So is my loan old enough where I would be able to refinance to extend the term and in the future sometimes you're buying properties in a high interest rate environment and now interest rates are lower you might also be able to get a better interest rate the challenge we've had coming out of where we were in the past is interest rates have been really low for a long period of time so that if you go and you try to do this strategy in the future when interest rates are higher than when you got the loan it may not be as big of an advantage as if you had to keep the rates the same or if you could actually get a lower rate so When you are, when you've acquired properties and your rates are really great, this may not be as great of a strategy, but if you're doing this at when rates are high and your rates are now lower, this could be a doubly good strategy to lower the monthly payment. Okay, so that's refining to extend the term. The other one, which we've kind of hinted at is refi to improve rate. Have rates dropped enough for me to be able to refinance and get a better interest rate. Even if you don't extend the term, even if you keep the term the same, but you go in there and you say, look, I want to go, I've got a 7% interest rate right now. I got this loan when rates were high. Now rates are back down to 5%. It might be, might make sense for you to go look at refining in order to improve your interest rate to improve cash flow on properties where the rates were high. Okay, And then the other option is sometimes it makes sense to pay off a loan completely. If you have the cash sitting on hand where you've got it invested in something else, Maybe you take that money and you pay off the loan. Now, realize if you pay off the interest rate, on, if you pay off a loan, the return you're getting on your money is the interest rate of the loan. So if you've got a 3% loan and you pay off that mortgage, the return you're getting on the money that you use to pay off that mortgage is technically 3%. Now, sometimes it feels very differently. Sometimes it feels like, you know, I'm freeing up $2,000 a month on a mortgage payment by only paying off $50,000 of, of loan that's remaining because you paid down the loan so much, but your payment was based on, you know, 20 years ago when the payment was $2,000 a month. So realize that it could feel very differently, but technically the return you're getting is the interest rate of the mortgage itself, which may or may not be good. I mean, if you're at an 8% rate on your loan, then that may not be such a bad thing. If it's only two or 3%, I don't know, that's a little bit lower. You have to decide whether that's important to you. And for those of you that are thinking, hey, you know, I don't have all this extra cash laying around. Well, some people, their strategy is to acquire more properties than they need, sell off some of the properties in order to pay off the other ones. So you may acquire, you know, one or two properties a year for the next 10 years. And then at the end of the 10-year period, you take three or four or five or six of the properties that you acquired, you sell those pay the capital gains tax, pay the depreciation recapture tax, uh, you know, pay the real estate commissions and the closing costs on it so that you walk away net with your true net equity after all those expenses and use those proceeds to then pay off loans on the four properties or five properties or six properties, however many you decide to keep. And that could actually improve cash flow, especially if the ones you're selling are equity rich, but not cash flow strong. If the cash flow, the return on equity from cash flow is actually not great on those. You could take those and you could actually significantly boost the properties that you end up paying off to really improve cash flow on those. So some people, that's their strategy. Their strategy is look, I'm in a market where it's really hard to make properties cash flow. What I really need in order to be financially dependent at the end, if I'm kind of like looking forward to when I'm gonna be financially independent, what I really need at the end is I'm gonna need some free and clear properties because these properties finance are not the most amazing at cash flowing. So maybe you're acquiring a whole bunch of properties using like kind of like buying properties, maybe below market even, as kind of rocket boosters to get really good returns, especially early on when the return on equity is so great, and then use that money to then pay off other properties at some point in the future. If you you read the book Creating Wealth by Robert Allen, one of his chapters is about this strategy. And before you go run out there and buy it, um, his numbers are really old. It's a very dated book. And the math on them is not the most amazing so you know take it as you will it's still worth reading but just realize that you know if you're looking if you're thinking oh james recommended this i'm going to go read it because uh you know obviously the math's going to be really good and super clear and and uh, the numbers are going to be you know appropriate for today they're not <laughs> unless he's got a new version out that uh I, I, to be fair, the, the version I'm reading is probably a 1990s version or something like that. It's on my shelf somewhere. I'm trying to see if I can see it. Yeah, it's down there in the corner. If you can see it, but it's an older version that I have. So maybe he updated it. I have not. I don't know if he has. Definitely let me know. Okay. All right. So we talked about three options: refi to extend the term, refi to improve the rate, and then pay off the loan completely. Might be an option where you can improve cash flow overall in your portfolio before you go buy something else. And the other reason to pay off a loan is sometimes. Some lenders may penalize you for having a certain number of loans. They may say, look, your interest rate is a quarter point better or an eighth of a point better uh, for your first four loans. Once you get above five, then we start hitting you with a small penalty on your interest rate. So if you pay off one of the loans, you may be able to get a better interest rate on the one you're getting to. Just kind of realize that that may be a possibility. Um, If it's not there now, it has been in the past, and it may come back. Okay. Let's talk about taxes. Kind of have three different options here about taxes. So number one is, can I correct incorrect information with the county assessor about the condition or characteristics of my property? Now, If they're listing your property as in like super premium condition, and it's a five bedroom, and you know that it's actually a four bedroom and the condition's more average than it is super premium, you can go to the tax assessor and say, look, My property is not what you're saying it is in the assessor. And because of that, you're using different comps, which means that you're saying that the property is worth more when it's really not. So my taxes should actually go down because it's only a four bedroom and it's only of average condition. It's not of this super premium condition. And some tax assessors may send someone out to inspect the property. Some may take your word on it. Some may say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, You know, here's the permit that we pulled when we, we showed that it was only a four bedroom whatever it is that they need to do, but you may be able to be able to get your taxes reduced, which by reducing your expenses on the property, that does improve cash flow, right? Income, all the income on the property minus all the expenses. So if we can improve taxes, we can improve our cash flow. If you have property taxes that go up, you know around here we re- redo our taxes every two years. your market may be different. Go find out from your local county uh, tax assessor what the, schedule is for redoing a property tax assessment. Some redo assessments every time you sell a property. Some do it only every certain period of time. But if you go and you find out that they've raised your taxes and the taxes seem significantly higher than what you thought they should be, you can go and contest them in many markets and say, look, you're using the wrong comps. If you use the comps that I'm pulling here, um, my taxes are actually much lower than what you say they are. And they may or may not agree that yeah we you know the automated system valued this incorrectly. We'll go ahead and make a change, and you might save some money on taxes. Or they might say no. The comps that we use are valid, and our methodology is is actually correct here, and the taxes stay the same. Maybe you get some improvement. Maybe you don't. I don't think it's a universal automatically granted, but you might be able to go and contest your taxes with a tax increase and try to save your money. Now, you know if you can go save I don't know fifty dollars a month on ten properties, it starts adding up starts really improving your cash flow If you could do this and just, and also keeping the taxes legitimately where they should be and not a little bit higher than where they should be will help you keep your taxes low overall. So you don't want to like let your taxes be high and the next year they're kind of increasing from that point. You want to keep them where they should be by using the right comps. And hopefully the next year they won't increase it using the bad comps again. They'll sort of uh, say, okay, yeah, we, we were wrong about this. We'll use the right ones in theory. And then finally, for taxes, um, vote vote appropriately for changes in taxes that affect property taxes. So, if you're in a county and you know they're about to add a new tax to the kind of like list of taxes that they charge you, and you have a you have an option to vote for or against that, and it's something that you don't believe would add value that you're willing to pay for as a property owner, then vote appropriately. You know, vote to kind of like protect your interests. So go ahead and consider that. All right, insurance. So we've got one, two, three, four, five different things related to insurance that we're gonna talk about. First thing, who is being insured? You know, sometimes we buy properties with people who aren't necessarily the best credit risk people and their credit scores are appropriately low. And so you got to be careful because insurance, part of your insurance premium is sometimes based on the credit score of the people that are being insured. So can you remove people who have really low credit scores that may be making your insurance premium higher than it needs to be? Or in some cases, adding someone who has really good credit could help lower your score, could help lower your insurance premium Same policy, exactly same policy, but because someone has a good credit score or a bad credit score, it could actually change the rates that you're being quoted and that you'd be charged for that insurance policy. So realize adding or removing people from your insurance policy could improve or worsen the rate you're getting. And so talk to your insurance agent about that and whether you should remove someone from being insured on that or not. Next one, insurance deductible. So uh, we've got a whole class on insurance, and I'm sure we'll do another one in the future. But the idea is you get to select how much of a deductible you're willing to pay before the insurance kicks in. So imagine you go buy an insurance policy, and you say, look, for, for this insurance policy, I want a $10,000 deductible, meaning that I will pay out $10,000 before the insurance company needs to pay out anything. And so let's say there's a, a hailstorm, and you need a new roof on your property, and the roof's going to cost $17,000. The insurance company, instead of writing you a check for $17,000 when you have this hailstorm and you have this uh, new roof that needs to replace, they might write you a check for $7,000 because you have a $10,000 deductible, and you're responsible for that first $10,000, and then they cover the rest after that. Well, as you can imagine, if an insurance company uh, if, if you get an insurance policy where you're paying the first $10,000, that's going to be less expensive for the insurance policy than someone who has an insurance policy with exactly the same coverage where the insurance company pays everything over $1,000. So if they needed a the new $17,000 roof, they'd be paying out 16,000 versus 7,000. So you could go in there and you could take on some of this risk yourself by having a higher deductible basically anything under a $10,000 claim, you are basically saying you're going to cover that because the insurance company knows you're not going to make a claim if they're going to have to pay out nothing. You shouldn't make a claim if they're not going to pay out nothing, right? So realize you could adjust the deductible in order to change your insurance premium. Now realize this is putting you at a possible risk and you need to weigh that risk and say, am I willing to take on that level of risk? And I think For me, it changes property to property. Like there are certain properties I have where I have much lower deductibles and there are certain properties I have where I have much higher deductibles. Okay, but you have to decide what level of risk you're willing to take on yourself. Can I raise my property insurance deductible, take on more of the property insurance risk personally and have a lower monthly payment for insurance knowing that if something were to happen I'm actually going to have a pretty significant hit to my cash flow because I'm going to need to pay out that premium upfront, right? You may be trading an improved cash flow now instead of having this risky, I need to pay $10,000, which is a lot of $100 a month in order to get caught up to the $10,000, you know, kind of like deductible that you need to pay in. So you need to weigh those yourself. And you can find out the quotes for them. You could say to the insurance agent, I'd like to get quotes for me having a $5,000 deductible or a $10,000 deductible or a 1% deductible. You know, they use the property value as a percentage. You know, they can kind of get different quotes and find out what the policy is and see which one makes sense for you and what you're opening yourself up to as far as risk there, okay? Next thing, shop insurance rates. Would Would it occur to you that sometimes an insurance company will price themselves very aggressively, very low, in order to acquire some business at one point in time. And then years later, they decide they wanna move away from that particular type of business. And one of the ways that they signal that to the, popu- to the population is they start raising their rates to discourage people from using them. Is that possible that you know insurance company could do that? So if you've had an insurance policy over time, even though you priced that out and it was super competitive five years ago, now, five years later, the insurance rates may have gone up considerably such that it may not be competitive anymore or other people may be much more competitive. They're wanting the business where this other company is sort of just humming along saying, now we've established ourselves. We've got a big enough group of clients. We don't need to be pricing ourselves very aggressively anymore. So we're just going to have what normal rates are, but there may be one or two or three other companies that are very aggressively trying to acquire business. And for the same exact coverage, the rates could be cheaper for one company to another. Also, the quality of the company, their service, their, their kind of like um, reasonableness in claims, their speed to pay, their kind of like denial of claims versus the acceptance of claims ratio. Like all of these things can come into play where you may be getting a cheaper rate, but they may deny you if you really have legitimate claims, and then you got to go fight with them versus another company. They may actually have a higher rate, but they're willing to, you know, kind of like honor your claims without fighting with you as much, you know, just realize that there are differences that you might be paying for that you may that may be hard to see. Even with the exact same coverage, it may be hard for you to see kind of those different things. So shop around, compare, compare insurance rates to make sure that your insurance premiums are competitive. And it is important to make sure that you're getting apples to apples comparisons. You don't wanna get, you know, say, hey, what's the insurance policy on this property that I'm getting? Here's the address. And you go quote it that way. And three different insurance companies give you quotes and they're all over the place. One of them's really high. One of them's really low. One of them's right in the middle. They could be giving you quotes on very different coverage. One could cover a lot of things. One could cover the bare minimum of things. One could cover you uh, up to certain limits that are much higher. One could cover you to certain limits, which are much lower. One could have carve outs or exclusions. So you got to really read these carefully, and it's very hard to compare, at least that's what I found, when I used to do this. My wife does it now, so I don't do it anymore, okay? All right, so insurance coverage. Can I evaluate the exact property insurance coverages to make sure you have an appropriate level of coverage? So by going in and reviewing your actual policy and saying, do I really need this amount of coverage, or do I you know, I really wanted to have this particular coverage on this particular property. How come I don't have it? Maybe I should get a quote and and, and increase my insurance voluntarily, because it makes sense for you to have that coverage. So evaluating what property insurance coverages you have, and make sure that it's an appropriate level for you. Now, what does that appropriate level means? It's really up to you to decide how much you want, how much of the insurance risk you want to take on yourself versus how much you want the insurance company to have. And then finally, insurance, but a totally different type of insurance. Before we've been talking about property insurance, the landlord policy, mostly on properties that you own. Although if you're living in the property, it's owner-occupant policy, and then you wanna tell them that you have roommates so you can make sure you get the right coverage there. But we've been talking about property owner coverage, property and casualty type of insurance. Now we're gonna switch everything and talk about private mortgage insurance. Still insurance, but this is insurance that you buy when you put less than 20% down, to protect the lender in case you default. And some of these private mortgage insurances, not FHA, FHA lasts forever unless you've got, there are some exceptions when FHA does not last forever. So you should probably still check with your lender, but most FHA policies are not gonna have um, PMI that goes away. PMI lasts for the lifetime of the loan. But a lot of other insurance, a lot of other loans, conventional financing specifically, um, they will allow you to get rid of PMI Once your loan to value drops below either 80% or 78%, depending on who you talk to and which lender you're talking about. So if you get below 80% loan to value, a lot of times you can call up the lender and say, I'd like to request that my private mortgage insurance be dropped because you have 20% of equity at this point, 5% cushion of equity to protect you. Sometimes they'll make you pay for an appraisal. Sometimes they'll do a kind of like desktop market analysis to see if they believe that's true. Sometimes they might ask for a a broker's opinion of price, but they will will oftentimes check to make sure that's true unless they're using the original loan value, the original property value when you purchased it, and you paid down the loan now below 20% equity, 80% loan to value, then a lot of times they will automatically just exclude it from there without having to do an appraisal. But if you had a $250 a month PMI payment, which I don't think is out of the ordinary, especially for nomads, and now you can have that removed, that will boost cash flow by $250 a month, which can be significant. You know, you do that on three or four properties over, you know, kind of a five or 10 year period. I don't know, that could be pretty significant improvement to cash flow. All right, let's talk about making payments. And I don't think this really applies to mortgages specifically. Although you'll find out from your lender, maybe they will do something with this. But sometimes you can get a discount for auto pay. You know, I've seen occasionally like a utilities company where they say, look, if you're on auto pay, we waive the, you know, $3 a month uh, manual billing charge where they send you a bill. You know, if we don't have to send you that, uh, if we do it via email, then we will waive the $3 a month kind of like a billing charge and you can have a little bit less. You know, this is not going to be a, you know, $100 a month type of savings. But if you have enough of them, it could add up a little bit. You know, so can you sign up for auto pay on utilities? or things like that to avoid a per bill fee charged by the utility providers or whoever the person doing the billing is. And then secondly, sometimes you can get a discount for early payments. For example, some HOAs will say, look, it's uh, you know, $600 a year if you pay quarterly or if you pay it all up front in advance, we do 550. And so you could save a little bit of money by getting a discount for th- paying things like HOA, or maybe your insurance will allow you to get a small discount if you pay all up front for the year in advance versus paying monthly. So realize that may be a possibility as well. All right, let's talk about property management. I'm going to give you two conflicting ideas right now, because sometimes one's better and sometimes the other's better. So for example, you could self-manage the property, save the fee that you were paying for a professional property manager you just have to keep up with the latest laws and the best best practices and compliance issues and do the property management yourself and some people on the recording listening to this we're going to say yeah of course i mean that's easy i'll just go ahead and do this why would someone pay a professional property manager when it's so easy to manage your properties you just you, know, you make a couple phone calls you know, when you have to turn the property over, it's, it's not that bad. But then most of the time, these things are on autopilot, and I have very little things I need to do with the properties. They're, they're almost like self-managing. Some people will say that. And then some people say, I never want to talk to a tenant. I'm an introvert. I have zero desire to keep up with all of these latest laws. I mean, who can keep track of all this stuff? You know, fair housing. I mean, that seems like it changes every other day. And you know what are the best practices for managing my property? You know, starting you know 15 days ahead of time, wait for the property to be vacant before I market it. You know, starting 60 days ahead of time. You know, what what should I be doing for this? And you know, how do you keep up with all the changes for the leasing laws? And you know, like how do you do all this stuff? And you know, can I commingle funds? And do I need to have a separate trust account and all that other stuff? I'm just going to go hire a professional property manager. They'll do it. I'm going to find a person who's really really good, and they'll be able to go and do that. And I'm too embarrassed to go ahead and raise rents every year a professional property manager will be able to do that for me and so overall i think the property management fee is going to be covered by the fact that they're probably going to increase rents when i wouldn't otherwise do it and i think both of those are probably valid arguments there's people that are like self-manage why pay a property manager for something that's so easy to do that i could do it myself and i will be able to improve my cash flow by doing self-management and other people are like I'm going to have a tenant in there and I'm not going to raise rents over a decade or 15 years. And so I'm going to be way below market rent. It's better for me to pay a property manager. Who's going to keep up with the latest rents, make sure I stay out of trouble kind of buffer me from having some, you know, kind of law and compliance risk of making a mistake with fair housing, or, you know, I'm doing something wrong, or I'm commingling funds or I don't have a trust account or all these other things that I could make sound very, very complicated, but, You know, the people that are managing it themselves, they're like, yeah, it's a non-issue. So you have to decide which one of these makes sense to you. And I think that both of them could be right for different people. If you're wondering what I do, for many, many years, I self-managed. For many years, I self-managed with the help of a property manager. So like I had a property manager doing some things. And then I've completely switched over now where I don't manage any of my properties myself. It's all professionally property managed. So that's what James does in case you're wondering. Speaking of property managers, you do need to manage the manager. That's another tip on here. So can I review my property management statements carefully for mistakes? Property managers are human. They make mistakes. Sometimes a lot, depending on who it is and their policies and kind of like their team and who's doing stuff and how much turnover they have and a whole bunch of other factors that go into that. But sometimes property managers make a lot of mistakes. And so you sometimes need to stay on top of them. Well, you always need to stay on top of your property manager, but sometimes you need to do it more so than others. And that could actually save you. I mean, if, if you have a wrong bill and they accidentally charge you $1,000 for something that you didn't need to pay, or you know, it was, it was really a, a $4,000 bill instead of a $5,000 bill, and you don't catch that, that's almost $100 a month. That's pretty significant for cash flow. So take that into account. And then, related to that, insist on best practices. Can I insist that my property manager utilize the best practices, marketing early, way before the property is vacant, raising rents with each lease renewal, not just saying, hey, we got you know, $2,000 a month last time, we'll get $2,000 a month this time you know, making sure that they do rent comps and push the price if they're starting early. Can you insist that they have the best practices? Now, as a practical thing, you could try to do this, but as a practical thing, if they've got, if they're managing a thousand units and you've got one rental and you want them to change their policy and do something different just for you, do you think that that's likely? I will tell you, from experience, it probably isn't likely unless it's something that is very reasonable and very easy to do. But if you expect them to change their internal policies to do something very different for you than everyone else, even though that may be the best practice, good luck with that. Now, change that up. You've got a property manager who has 300 properties under management and you have 50 of them, you have 50 doors. Do you think you have some pull, some sway, in getting something changed in their internal policies? I think you do. I think you do. Okay, so take that into account. All right, let's talk about maintenance of properties. In general, I think it's better to maintain properties, keep them up to date, keep your tenants happy, reduce turnover. A properly maintained property should overall reduce turnover, and turnover can be very expensive. So, maintaining your property can maintain it to minimize the time between tenants. Another reason to minimize, another reason to maintain your property is then you have less to do when the property turns. If you know that you're keeping up on all the little maintenance requests that you get from tenants, uh, which are legit, then when the property needs to turn over, you don't need to do all those things anyway. They're already done, they're already maintained. Okay. So, can you maintain property to minimize vacancy, to improve cash flow overall? And then sometimes we're talking about quality materials. Sometimes it makes sense to use a slightly more expensive material that will last much longer than using a kind of like temporary, lower quality fix to save a couple dollars up front. For example, in some units, it may make sense for you to do luxury vinyl tile or luxury vinyl plank. Spend a little bit more money up front than to pay for. You know, low grade carpet that you know you're going to need to replace much more frequently than the LVT LVP. Which, if you look at it over a long period of time, it looks like you took a hit to your cash flow. But if you think if you figure out this lasts twice as long, but it only costs twenty percent more, then you should have reduced your overall expenses on cash flow over a longer period of time, not just in that first year when you took the hit on a little bit more expensive. Okay. All right. This is the last one, and, and this is really important because these could be big dollars. Depreciation. Depreciation is the tax benefits you get from the IRS for owning rental property. The basic idea is this, and, and I'm, this is all layman stuff. So don't go to your, you know, don't go into your IRS audit and say, you know, James explained it like this. So, you know, they're like, who's James? <laughs> who's who's this guy anyway? You need to go talk to your tax professional and get like the legit thing or go look up the tax guide and actually read it yourself. But this is my layman's version of what this is. When you go buy a rental property, the government says, look, this property is going to depreciate in value over time. The the usefulness of the building itself is going to fade over time such that over 27 and a half years for residential properties, it's going to go from whatever it's worth when you buy it down to zero not the value of the land. The land is excluded. The land does not depreciate in value, but the functionality of like the things on the property itself, the the siding, the carpet, the, the kitchen sink, it wears out over time. And so we call that depreciation. And the government allows you, the IRS allows you to actually depreciate that, to get a tax advantage of having this thing go to zero. So how it works is this. You buy a property and let's say it's a on a $400,000 property. And let's say the land is worth $100,000. You'd find out from your tax assessor or ask your CPA for advice on how they do it in your marketplace. But let's say the land is worth $100,000. So the depreciable amount, the depreciable amount for the building is $300,000 as an example. So normally the government would say, look, if you want to, you could take that $300,000, the value of the building, and you could divide by 27 and a half years. And then on your taxes, you could offset income you have by that amount each year. So, on a $300,000 property, let me go ahead and uh, pull up a calculator here and I'll do a little bit of math for you. So, $300,000 divided by 27.5. So, they're basically saying you could take $10,909 and subtract that from the income, I, I'll say eligible income, uh, in order to not pay taxes on that amount. So, th- to use really basic layman's terms, which isn't exactly correct, but it's good enough for me explaining to you. If you made $100,000 a year, you could take this $10,909. Let's just call it $11,000. We're going to round up. So this $11,000 in depreciation, and you could remove that from the income that you made so that you're paying taxes only on the amount that's less. So if you made $100,000 minus $11,000, you're now paying taxes on $89,000 instead of taxes on $100,000. So because you were able to deduct that depreciation from your income. Now, what that means is this $11,000 in depreciation that you got, if you multiply that by your tax rate, you know, whatever your highest tax rate is, because it's really on the highest. Although if you use effective tax rate as an estimate, it'll kind of make it a little bit more conservative because your effective tax rate's a little bit lower. So if your effective tax rate, let's say is, uh, you know, 25%, that means about $2,500 per year is how much you didn't have to pay in on taxes, which if you squint really hard is like $200 a month. So you got almost like $200 a month in saved taxes, which looks like cash flow to you. Because you could go to your job and you could say, look, adjust my exemptions, adjust the, the kind of like exemptions you're taking out of my ch- paycheck so that you're, you're lowering the taxes that are taken out of your monthly paycheck so that you get a little bit more on your job paycheck because you know at the end of the year you're going to get this depreciation and you're not going to have to pay that amount in money. So you could say, look, go ahead and adjust my normal paycheck stuff, even though it's technically from the real estate. But so I'm paying less in the taxes on my paycheck. I get more money in each weekly paycheck or biweekly paycheck or monthly paycheck or whatever you're doing so that it actually looks like cash flow to you each month. And you could go do that, adjust it so that it's about $2,500 for the year, about $200 a month, and that actually would improve your cash flow. So it is like improving cash flow right? By, by getting this depreciation method, even though it's really a tax benefit that you'd get at the end of the year, it really is like getting cash flow because you may just get it. If you think about it, getting in advance at the beginning of the year, you're paying last year. So it looks like this year's moving forward. Or do you want to take it out of your monthly paycheck, your weekly paycheck or whatever from your job? You can do that as well. And there are definitely some, some rules for this, right? Like you can, if you earn so much money, you have to defer it. You can't take it all at the same time. You know, if you, uh, if you, don't, if, if you don't qualify for you know, the um, the active real estate investor thing then might not be able to take it. So there's some rules to this. You got to go look at those and talk to your CPA or read them yourself to go into them. But this idea of being able to take depreciation is really important. Now, why am I making such a big deal out of this? Because with depreciation, you have to take it. You, you can't choose not to take it. The government assumes, the IRS assumes that you have taken the, the tax depreciation benefit. So when you sell the property, they want to capture this back. They want to take the, the benefit that you got and they want to charge you taxes moving forward, depreciation recapture tax. So they assume that you took it. It's not like if you don't take it, then you don't have to do depreciation recapture. That's not true. You have to do it. So if you got to do it, you might as well do it. So why am I making a big deal of this if you have to do it anyway? Well, there is an optional thing you can do. You could go to an engineering firm and have them go through your property and determine what the depreciation schedule is for each individual component instead of the depreciation schedule for the entire building. The really simple way to do it is you take the entire building, not the land, but the, you take the purchase price, you subtract out the value of land, you get the value of the building, and you divide by 27 and a half years, and that is a simple way to calculate it. However, you could hire an engineering company to go into the property and say, oh, Flooring, that's a whatever it is, a five year depreciation schedule. So instead of taking this $3,000 building and depreciating everything over 27 and a half years, they break out each individual component into its real depreciation schedule. So, carpet, flooring may be five years. So now they take all the value of all your flooring in your house and they say that whole value now, instead of taking that over 27 and a half years, we are going to take that over five years. And so that actually can make the amount of depreciation you get much earlier you don't have to wait 27 and a half years to get the value of the flooring you can take that over five years which can significantly improve the cash flow from depreciation that cash flow you're getting on the property early on in theory when you probably need it most if you're buying a property and your cash flow is not great because prices are high interest rates are high and rents are lagging it tends to be not great early on. And then as rents sort of creep up over time, it gets better and better because most of the time your payment is fixed, right? Your mortgage payment becomes fixed. And so even though taxes and insurance are going up a little bit, rents are going up faster than those. And so cash flow tends to improve on rental properties over time. So usually your cash flow is worse early on. So getting this cash flow from depreciation benefit earlier is better for you. And apparently you could take some bonus depreciation, which I'm not a tax expert. Go talk to your tax expert about it but you could take this bonus depreciation early for the next couple of years. So right now, your bonus depreciation percentage is 80%. That's in 2023. I'm recording this March 30th of 2023. And this year, according to tax code, you could take an 80% bonus depreciation. Next year, it's 60%. So 2024, it's 60%. 2025, it's 40%. 2026, it's 20%. And in 2027, there's no bonus depreciation. Now it's possible the politicians will change tax code again and they will bring back bonus depreciation sometime after 2027 or maybe even before for all we know, right? This, this bonus depreciation idea has come in and come out of the tax code more than once. It's my understanding. So it's possible that it'll come back in the future. But right now in this year, you get 80% bonus depreciation. So if you were going to go buy this $400,000 property that has $300,000 in depreciable amount, an an estimate of what this bonus depreciation might be is somewhere between $30,000 and $45,000. Of course, you have to go and look at the actual property and have the engineering report done and and they'll actually do the numbers, but it's somewhere in the range of $30,000 to $45,000 in bonus depreciation, which before it was around $11,000 for the normal one. So the bonus depreciation just in that first year is like three times the normal. And if you're at a 25% tax bracket, you know that could be somewhere in the neighborhood of $7,500 in tax savings, which looks like cash flow to you. So if you could get an extra $7,500 that you didn't have to pay in tax, looks an awful lot like, I don't know, let's call it um, $650 a month. If you could offset $650 a month or or add $650 a month in extra cash flow from depreciation to your property from this bonus depreciation year 1, would that help you offset some negative cash flow? Or would that help offset some really low positive cash flow with pretty significant positive cash flow? I think yes. And that's on the low end, right? That's like the low end of the bonus depreciation. If you wait to do this till next year, where you buy a property next year, you only get 60%. So that's about 24,000 to thirty six thousand dollars, you take twenty five percent of that, and you know it's like five hundred dollars a month. So it doesn't go away, but it becomes less effective if you're not buying properties this year. Now, in addition to that, you you get this bonus depreciation all up front, but you also take the things like the carpet and the, or the flooring rather, and you know the appliances and you know the cabinets and all that other stuff, and you kind of force that into a a, a more compressed time period. You get additional depreciation over the next. Five years, because that you've moved up. Now, realize this is not creating nothing out of thin air. You were you going to get this depreciation benefit no matter what. What we've decided to do with this bonus depreciation and kind of like doing the components or the, the segmenting of different, different things into different uh, time periods is you've moved the whole depreciation stuff up you've time warped and moved the depreciation you were getting from being over 27 and a half years to now a lot of it gets focused in the first year and a little bit more gets focused in the years one through five. But then the amount you get years six through 27 and a half is lower. So you're not generating anything magical. This is not like, poof, we've generated something that's out of thin air. We've just taken some of it and we've moved it all forward when in theory, you probably need it more with negative cash flow on properties. And again, this is not something that you get for free. When you sell the property, they have depreciation recapture. Now, let's just very briefly talk about this depreciation recapture so that you don't get scared by it. Depreciation recapture is they're gonna take the amount of depreciation you took on the property and they're gonna multiply it by a tax rate. Uh, the max is 25% from what I understand, but the, the amount is really the amount of your tax rate. So if if you're being taxed at less than 25%, they'll use that number. If you're being taxed at more than 25%, they will tax you at 25%. Now, you can delay or defer paying those depreciation recapture taxes, move them onto the next property that you're buying by doing a 1031 exchange. So you pay about $1,000, it could be a little bit more, it could be a little less, but you pay about $1,000 and you defer having to pay this depreciation recapture tax and any capital gains tax on the property that you're selling, and you move it down the line. And additionally, if you own this property long enough and you eventually die while owning the property, it gets passed on to your heirs and the amounts that you have for depreciation, it goes away It gets stepped up. You have stepped up basis, okay? So realize that this is not like a real issue. If you have the depreciation recapture, when you go to sell a property, you just pay the tax, as part of your proceeds, and you'd move on. It's not a big deal. And you got the benefit early on. It's almost like, I don't want to say this, but it's, it's almost like a loan from the government where they're giving you money now, only to say you're going to have to pay this later by owning this rental property. Okay. So we talked about this bonus depreciation. If you do it, if you buy a property this year, you get between approximately on a $400,000 property, it's going to be somewhere around the $30,000 to $40,000 gross depreciation benefit. Okay. And over the next five years, you'll get between $30,000 and $45,000 more. So you have to divide that number by five and then you have to multiply it by your tax rate to get an estimate. So if you take like the the total amount you're getting, you're, you're getting like in year one, you might be getting somewhere around 36000 so somewhere around $54,000 in that first year if you multiply that by your 25% tax rate just to give you an idea of like what we're talking about on the low end it's probably around $9,000 on the high end it's probably around you know $13,700 so you know somewhere around $800 to 1000 maybe a little bit more per month in extra cash flow is that significant yes very significant so if you had a property where you were like, hey, I'm getting you know negative 500 dollars a month in cash flow because I'm putting five percent down and interest rates are really, really high and the prices have just run up over the last few years and rents aren't that great right now. they're lagging behind I and mean, they're up, but they're they're lagging behind a little bit from you know how much prices and interest rates have gone up. Will an extra $800 dollars a month help you in the first year? Yes, will an extra thousand dollars a month help you in the first year? Yes. And in the second year, you're probably talking, you know, this because you're moving some of the depreciation up there. You're probably talking about, let's see, on the, on the low end, 30000 divided by five. You're probably talking like another, uh, let's see here. Am I doing this right? Yeah, about $400 a month. Okay. So that's why this is important for improving cash flow. And you're going to want to talk to a CPA. Understand this, and you're going to want to talk to an engineering firm that specializes in uh, cost segregation. And one, ideally, that that focuses on cost segregation, probably for single-family homes. Because this is really common in large commercial buildings, but it's less common. Although it's completely usable in these smaller properties, there's just a cost to doing this. You're going to pay a fee in order to have the cost segregation study done. Have the engineering company go and do that for you. So you pay a little bit of money now in order to get. Your depreciation benefits early on. And with the bonus depreciation, it's probably worth it. Okay. All right. So that's it. In conclusion, optimizing cash flow is about maximizing income and minimizing expenses. And today, I think we focus mostly on minimizing expenses, all the different ways to minimize expenses on properties. There are things you could do on properties you already own that will improve your cash flow overall. And I think that's what we focused on. It's better to take a more holistic approach and optimize at the various stages rather than just sort of like willy nilly saying, oh, can I get more in rent? No, I'm done. (laughs) You really want to think about this stuff in a better way, more holistic way. All right. That's all I got for you. Hope you enjoyed it. This has been James Orr. Have a great day. Bye bye for now. With home prices up, mortgage interest rates up, and rents up, but not quite enough to counteract the higher prices and interest rates.